cliffcentral.com. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very, very happy to be your host today. And I welcome you all with open arms to something which I think is absolutely necessary, something which is very pertinent to the situation that we're dealing with, not in, only in South Africa, but in the world. I also will introduce you in a moment or two to our guests. If I could just ask uh, Mark, Charlie, Dumelo, if you could just mute yourselves for the first few minutes. We're going to play a video, and then we will come to you straight after this. Um, to those who have just joined us, my name is Gareth Cliff. It's an absolute pleasure to have you uh, with us today for this special webinar in our series. It's the third in our series of Stop to Start webinars with ABSA. Um, can we just check here? Someone has not muted. If you could just mute yourselves, Charlie and Dumelo and Mark, then that would be very helpful. Thank you kindly. We are going to be joined by uh, our three guests in a moment for a live webinar in which I hope you will be interacting with us. The subject matter for today's discussion is the role of men in trying to curb this pandemic of gender-based violence. We'll talk about what the men of the future might be like, what kinds of things men right now could do to improve their contribution to this uh, battle that we all should be engaged in, and how we can best equip ourselves with a kind of positive masculinity rather than a toxic masculinity to assist women and girls to live safer happier, more productive, more empowered lives, and, uh, and be useful rather than a, 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 a problem and a, a, an added uh, level of confusion and, and ugliness in society as men. So we're going to talk to a lot of men. I know that that might surprise some people who perhaps didn't watch the first two episodes of this webinar, but the whole point here is not just to get people who are uh, you know, interested in the subject of gender-based violence, but also to get people in, on board who have real solutions and who have some, some potentially valuable information to share with us. So let's get started. Uh, you can, of course, still join. If you're having any technical problems, then uh, we are fairly sure that all you need to do is to re-enter the conversation, re, uh, re, you know, re-click on the link, and you should be okay. As I said, any questions you have, the chat facility on this webinar is available, and please post your questions throughout the conversation. I'm Gareth Cliff, uh, cliffcentral.com, and ABSA pleased and proud to bring you this conversation. I will introduce you to all of my guests in a short while, but to begin with today's uh, conversation, men's violence against women remains a pervasive feature of life all over the world. Increasingly, attention is being paid to engaging men and boys to end men's violence. Programs and policies have been successfully piloted by NGOs around the globe and have shown to promote important and positive change in men's gender-related attitudes and practices. So to give you a little bit of background, the United Nations defines sexual and gender-based violence as any act that is perpetrated against a person's will and is based on cultural and socially-based gender norms and unequal power relationships. So today we'll talk about what those cultural and social norms are and how they're influential in shaping individual behavior and the rules and expectations of behavior, including the use of violence. We'll give you some examples of those. And all of my guests today are well-versed in their own experiences and their own take on how we can do something about this and not just talk about it. So to get us started, I spoke yesterday to a very, very interesting man called Jackson Katz. Now, Jackson Katz is uh, no stranger to people in the field of gender-based violence. He's written 
amazing books, which I would encourage anyone to pick up. And if you haven't ever heard of him, he really is a fascinating man. His work is also in academia, but he largely takes the role of giving group uh, facilitations and lectures and TED Talks even to the military, to football teams at the highest level in the United States. And he's interested in the new kind of man that is emerging, the kind of man that we should all aspire to be. And I had a, a very lengthy conversation with him, all of which is available on the ABSA page on cliffcentral.com, and which I'd love you to go and have a look at. But I'm going to give you a snippet of this just so we can get the party started for today, let you understand where he's coming from, and perhaps give some context to the overall international discussion. So here is Jackson joining us from the East Coast in the United States of America. Take a listen to this. Language is a systemic force. Language helps to structure the way that we collectively think and the way we collectively understand and narrate our experience. And the way that, so a big part of my work from the beginning or close to the beginning of my work has been to look critically at how people think about this subject. Because if we're going to try to shift, if, if my work and others' work is trying to help people shift to think about this as a men's issue, not as a women's issue that good men help out with, how, it's important to think about how historically we've thought about it as a women's issue and how language contributes to that. So if you look critically at language, so much of the language that we use to talk about the subject of domestic and sexual violence itself keeps us in the old paradigm of thinking it's a women's issue. One of the ways it does that is by erasing agency on the part of men. In other words, the ones who are doing it, you talk about what happens to women, but not who's doing it to them. Even, I mean, for example, we say, we say, uh, as I've said a lot, um, how many women were raped rather than how many men raped women. We say how many women were abused rather than how many men abused women. We say how many girls or women were sexually harassed in the workplace rather than how many men sexually harassed women in the workplace. Even the term violence against women is a term that's passive. There's no active agent. Nobody's doing it to women. They're just experiencing yeah. it. And frankly, this is also probably the best illustration of what the systemic problem is, is because we're, we're victim focused, which is obviously correct from a, from an empathetic, from a, from a procedural point of view, but we actually don't assign the blame. We talk about the woman as the victim, but we don't talk about how many men may be doing this on a daily basis as the, as the real source of the problem. That's right. I just read a long article or longish article, um, in an, in an, in an, in a publication in Nigeria about mm-hmm. sexual violence in Nigeria. And there wasn't one mention in the whole article about, um, about men. The word women and girls was strewn throughout the article, kept referencing women and girls experience, women and girls as victims and survivors, women and girls services for women and girls. But every time it referred to the perpetrator, it was degendered and neutered. It was perpetrators, individuals, um, abusers. And, and again, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's anti-male to just be honest about this. I think that's yeah. BS, by the way. No, I think sure. I, I completely agree. I think we've, we've largely managed to discredit those arguments from a, a certain quarter of, of the uh, intelligentsia who believe that, that somehow any, any stance you take, which, which is pro-women, which gives women agency and which also assigns blame, that somehow that that's an anti-men stance is kind of right. ridiculous, right? It is, it is ridiculous. And I have to say, Gareth, one of the, one of the, I think this is an important point, especially for men, 
um, listening and men engaging in this, you know, in these kinds of dialogues that from, from the earliest days of the modern, if you will, pro-feminist men's movement or men engaged with support, being supportive of feminism and, and gender justice and gender equality, people like myself and others have made the connection between men's violence against women, men's violence against other men and men's violence against themselves. In other words, anybody like some men will say in response to these kinds of discussions, well, what about violence against men? What about all the men who have, of course there's violence against men, but most of the violence against men is done by other men. And this, the same system, again, the same system that produces men who abuse women also produces men who abuse other men. The same, when I say system, the same ideology about manhood, the same socialization of boys and girls. It's but not again, we, we must be careful again not to fall into the trap that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement falls into where it says, oh, well, only violence against black people from white people is the problem. And we all know that that is not. It's only a, a, a part of the problem. And similarly here, we don't want to end up having an argument with people who think that it's the same thing when you talk about sex and, and gender violence as it is with race. Right. No, I mean, I mean, again, these are just in fairness. These are tricky issues because the politics yeah, sure. them are somewhat different than than a, a more serious so, sober so intellectual discussion. Let me ask. Let me ask you about that because in America at the moment, you don't have the the kind the levels and the extreme and very violent situations to the degree that we have in South Africa, for whatever reason. And in South Africa, we know that part of the problem here is is fatherlessness, it's the lack of male role models, it's the lack of discussions that people like you have in America that we don't have um, as as often and on as many platforms as we do. But let's just look at the history of this for a second. I mean, men really have only been behaving appropriately and in a humane way towards women for maybe a 100 years, because before that, I don't know if there even was such a thing as consensual sex. And generally, the, the story of humanity for at least the last two millennia, has been a fairly violent one. And we can't imagine that before that it was any better. It was probably even worse. So in the last hundred years, and because I'm sure that from a social and anthropological point of view, you've looked at this, for a hundred years, men have been making hopefully steady incremental improvement, and in some places more exponential improvement. But for many women, it's it's still not enough. They're still treated no better than their great-great-grandmother might have been. Um, and and this idea is perhaps going to, to need, in evolutionary terms, a little bit longer to go. And we can't afford that. We can't afford more women being hurt. We can't afford more sexual and gender-based violence. We have to speed this process up. So when you look at it historically, how do you compare that to where we are now, to where we should be? And what is the role of men? Well, I appreciate that's big picture thinking. I mean, I mean, yes, it's going to take, it's taking decades and it will take probably hundreds of years to undo some of these structures that are deeply rooted in the last 10,000 years of, you know, recorded human history and civilizational history. And so it's, you can't be naive to think that overnight or even in a few years, we're going to, we're going to shift, radically shift history in that way. Although I have to say, having just said that, the changes that have happened over the past 50 years, the, the past half century, have been unbelievably dramatic. Absolutely. Right. And, and, we, and we should be proud of that as, as humanity. That's right. We should be. But, but knowing, knowing that this is a long struggle, and right. You're, you're right, you can't, like some people are impatient, and they should be, that it should be 
changed yesterday. It should be changed mm-hmm. tomorrow, not, not, you know, 10 years or 50 years in the future. And some of the problems of humanity are compounding with, with, with you know, compounding on, on top of the existing problems. There's all kinds of other problems that are awaiting us, environmental calamity and everything else. But so we can't wait, if you will, in that sense. But um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an enormous undertaking. I think that men have to be centrally involved in this because mm-hmm. men continue to hold most social, political, and economic power in the world. Women have made enormous progress around the world in challenging sort of um, men's monopoly on various kinds of power and authority. There's no doubt about that, and women, and that's one of the great stories of the past um, hundred years, and it will be the next sto- uh, one of the great stories of the 21st century. Well, we are back and live. That was Jackson Katz out of the United States of America. He's written a a couple of really interesting books about masculinity and the kinds of positive value that masculinity, when it is harnessed properly, can bring into society. I'd like to introduce to you now our panel for today, who are all very well versed in the subject, who are all very, very interesting people in their own right and have stories to tell us. I'd like to start with Mark Ramsing. Mark is the finance director at the Department of Water and Sanitation. And he's also a certified life coach, an inspirational speaker, and author. And as a child, Mark had a story where he was directly exposed to the residual effects of family violence. And he'll tell us about that just now. A year ago, he founded the nonprofit organization Project Rage SA. And you can look them up on the social media and the Internet. Um, so thank you very much, Mark. It's very nice to see you. Welcome. Thank you much, uh, very much, Garrett. It's, it's an honor and pleasure to to be uh, part of this discussion. And uh, yes, um, having faced the, the direct effects of, of um, family violence, yes, um, I think I had to grow up with a mindset that um, help people understand that we cannot repeat the cycle of the last gen- generation. And the power to change is in the ability to actually take that pain and instead of making it your prison, make it your platform. Well, to be able to champion the cause um, that has not been championed um, adequately enough by men before. I, I completely agree with you. I think that everybody on this webinar is really interested to hear your thoughts on that. And we will get to that in a second. But perhaps you just want to share your story of what you actually went through and, and, and how it taught you something about the nature of, of, of toxic masculinity, how it taught you something about how you can escape from cycles of abuse. And, and maybe it would be instructive to someone who's listening today. Um, look, I grew up in a in a family where my my father was highly abusive. He had gone into the gang and drug culture, and became quite a kingpin in the KZN areas. Hmm. Um, and through through um, being exposed to drugs and 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 exchange of firearms back in the um, early eighties, late seventies, early eighties, um, he was abusive from day one um, of. Uh, Marriage. Um, on the night that my they they got married, my mom was was beaten to a pulp uh, on their wedding night, and he went off to to um, take drugs and alcohol with his friends. And this is something because families kind of want to protect the family image by keeping silent about these things and almost washing it over to say, but what's going to happen to the family name? And I think, you know, growing up as a kid, I was constantly beaten to a pulp and almost to death, either me trying to save my mom or my mom trying to save me in the process, and was shipped off to every relative's home 
just for periods of recovery. And by the time I had reached high school, I had gone through five different schools already. Sure. So learning through that process, uh, you know, um, it, it took a psychological and um, and um, emotional and physical toll on me because um, at one stage he, he, he said to me that I'm an F up and I'll never amount to anything. And for two decades, I actually believed that. I actually believed that, you know, maybe he was right. And every time something went wrong in my life, I would go back to my father's words. And this haunted me until I, I had to go through that inner healing and psychological help to overcome that. Because at the age of 19, I was actually had a complete nervous breakdown and diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, sure. institutionalized for three months uh, in an institution. But the residual effects of that is that because he had spiraled out down into a level of soaked in, in, in drug, drug addiction. Yeah. Um, by the time I had reached my late teen, uh, early mid teens, 14 to 15 years old, I had to become the breadwinner of the home. Um, and that put me into a situation where, um, it took away the youth of my years because I had to be an adult before I could even barely make it out of being a boy. So basically we find that, um, you know, it had its toll. On, on, on me as a person. And, and, and obviously, you know, I have a very solid spiritual background. Yes. And that was the source and the anchor of helping me to overcome the challenges that I had overcome. But the one thing that I've learned is that everyone has the power to choose in which direction you can, uh, you can take. You can either become part of the problem or contribute towards the solution. So I decided, look, let me become a champion for the cause because it's affected me to the core. Right. And and that's how um, recently Project Rage came about. Well, I think that that's such a, a great story, Mark, and I know it's not always easy for people to share these stories, but it does help all of us to connect to where you're at in your life and why you're motivated to do the things you do. I know Charlie has stuff to tell us, which is more or less along the same lines, but obviously – uh, very different because of his circumstances and, and the things that he's doing. But I think you two could be brothers in arms, just judging by what I know about Charlie already. I do want to introduce uh, Tumelo. Now, we've uh, Tumelo's joining us from Botswana. So we've had a couple of buffering issues. In other words, there's a bit of a delay between his uh, answer and my question. So I'm just going to ask Tumelo to quickly tell us his story. He's the director of the people function at ABSA in Botswana. He's joining us from Khabarone, and he established a men's imbizo at ABSA in Botswana to assist his male colleagues to become better men and better fathers. Um, and I do want him to tell the story of, of his own son, Luapi, and, uh, and, and the relationship between a father and son, because I think that that is so instructive in helping us to understand where things can go right in so many families and where things can go wrong in so many families. So, Dumelo, please go ahead. And if you'll just bear with us, Dumelo might have a slight delay, but he will, he'll answer the question in a second. So if we'll all just give him a, a chance. Go ahead, Dumelo. Yeah, thank you so much, Gareth. And uh, good morning to you and uh, your viewers and to my fellow panelists as well. Um, a great morning and certainly a pleasure to meet you. Um, apologies, I seem to be having a bit of technical issues, but uh, yes, I'll ride along as we go on. Um, so, 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 yeah, um, about myself, really, what caught me and interested me to this discussion, uh, basically, Gareth, was the fact that um, in my early days, just as I was, you know, out of fresh, out of varsity, um, I lost a sister of mine who took um, her own life. Um, that was in 2006. And, um, you know, 
uh, looking back at it every time, and you know, I keep having you know these visions and this 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 kind of you know noise in my head um, that just won't go away easily around the fact that. Um, Having been a part of her life um, from a family of, you know, three siblings, um, me being the last born, I was very close to her because she was really the second there. And I tended to spend a bit of time with her because when I was in varsity, she had just started working um, and she was, um, you know, pretty much um, cohabiting with this guy and they had a child. Um, I, I used to witness, you know, in snippets and bits and pieces, um, some level and form of um, you know, abuse, um, be it not necessarily physical, but just the emotional and the financial abuse, which often at times is not really talked about because she was almost the breadwinner in this relationship. Um, and I could see that there was a bit of, you know, pain and struggle that was going on throughout, um, throughout this relationship. And eventually when she decided to end her life in a very horrible manner, I must say, um, you know, I've lived with that for the longest of time. When you fast forward, I got married in 2009 having had uh, a baby myself prior to prior to that um, from a different relationship. And I had a son. Um, so throughout the years, I've been, you know, I had these battles to, I have access to my own boy, um, have access to my own son until I eventually had to approach the courts um, and really seek reprieve from the courts. And um, that was a success. Uh, but it is actually now post that fact when everything came together that I started thinking about really, um, you know, what kind of a boy am I going to be raising? What kind of a man is he going to turn out to be? And to what extent do I influence who he is ultimately going to become? Um, and I looked back and I said, okay, with the, you know, rising levels of gender-based violence um, throughout, not just Botswana, but I guess the continent uh, as a whole, look at it. The, the reality of the matter is that in the majority of the cases, the perpetrators are pretty much on the male side. And I think if we have to make any of a change, any of a difference, it has to start with us as men. And I thought to myself, um, what a legacy it would be for me um, to actually leave a better breed of a boy child. And I only did not stop there. What I decided to do was to take the conversation to the workplace, uh, where I started having conversations with our citizenship manager to say, but how do we get more men involved? And luckily, um, the UN was also in, in the place to give us more statistics um, around all of this. And we had um, a very first, a successful first year to the extent that we were able to have um, discussions around the role of men in our society and about for me. And um, definitely working hard um, towards making sure that um, you know, I impact not only my, my, my boy, but I also have um, you know, two boys who are my, uh, my life. Uh, Dumela, I'm going to have to interrupt because uh, it seems that our, our signal is getting a little bit worse from you. And I'd, I'd like to hand over to Charlie Peterson at this stage. Charlie is is well known to uh, to ABSA. He's well known to me. We've been talking to each other for a couple of years. Thanks, Gareth. No problem. Thank you, Tumela. Uh, Charlie is the founder of Growing Up Without a Father. It's a foundation and organization, uh, non-profit that he founded in 2016. And, and I want you to tell the story of how it came about, Charlie, and also the young men that you speak to at your workshops, your own personal story and experience, just to give us the background and the context for why you're involved. Thank you, Gareth, and uh, good morning to my, my, my colleagues. And uh, Mark and myself have started uh, Project Rage. You know, I was just laughing when you said the two of us had <laughs> something in common. So we started the movement Project Rage, uh, uh, Gareth. Uh, my name is Charlie, you know. I, I 
I'm from a small town in the rural areas of Smithfield. I was born and bred there. And you know what? Most of the people are missing that most of this abuse, gender-based violence are actually happening a lot in the rural areas because Mm. the people in the rural areas are not having the mechanism, you know, like people in the cities to speak out and everything. My father just made me, left me. But what was interesting that when, when I asked my mother about my father, my mother was always saying that my father was also abusive, but he didn't, my father didn't beat her up. But he was counting meat, you know, like, okay, there's three pieces of meat, so don't share it with your friends or what. And also, you know, we, we look at abuse and gender-based violence only from the physical side, but the words that we as men are also, you know, throwing around that are hurting uh, our women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why in my book, my other book, I'm talking about we are because of women. So I grew up without a father. We went through a lot of bullying and everything because you are totally on your own, you know, a, a child that are growing up without a father. I, I can relate with mothers. I can relate with the pain of my mother, you know, when she was, then my brother was there, my older brother was there, you know, when we were giving her problems, you know, and fatherless kids can give a lot of problems here because we're battling with our own identities. We need to find out who are we and everything. So I went to high school and, uh, all on my own, you know, I, I told myself that, you know, I need to prove a point to show that I'm better than th- th- those ones. So I was always with me, the man in the mirror, myself and everything, fighting myself, fighting the situation around me. And if you don't have a strong background or a strong mother that prays and raise you up, you're lost. And I started to, you know, when I finished off school and everything, I also impregnated a girl, you know, like my father did because, you know, Papa was a rolling stone and people we forget about. Be careful what you say, what you say when you are saying your subconscious mind. I always said, I don't want to be like my father. And I promise you exactly what my mother said my father was. I started to become dead until I've decided, no, 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 I need to step out of the shoes of this man that I don't know. I need to find myself. I need to find out who's Charlie Peterson. And I wrote the book, uh, Growing Up Without a Father. I said, you know, maybe I know why I grew up without a father. I need to guide the ones that grew up without fathers. And after the book, the foundation started. And after the foundation, after my interactions at schools and everything, I picked up that boy children are actually the biggest threat of society, especially the ones that grew up without fathers. So I wrote uh, the other book, uh, Boy Child You Matter, which is the mentorship and the training program and I approached EPSA. And uh, EPSA was there. They they bought into the vision. We trained over over a thousand kids in four provinces. I'm just looking forward, you know, to to get in the flight to Botswana and all the other areas uh, to do the same what we did inside. But I promise you that it's tough. And really, I can speak from a side of a single mother. It's not easy for them. Mm. Yeah, this is where I am. But I promise you the book is working. The training program is working. Boys are changing. But don't forget, we're sitting with 80-year-old boys, 40-year-old boys, yeah. 50-year-old boys that never grew up. They are still yeah. stuck in 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 the in the, in the, the, the little boy and, and, is still stuck. And Charlie, and, and by the way, Mark, you can jump in any time here as well. Dumelo, it might be a little bit difficult for you too, but if you do want to jump in, please let us know. So here's the thing. Uh, for a lot of these young men, violence is the only language they were ever taught. They are not emotionally 
capable of expressing themselves. And if they are, they, then a lot of their peers consider that a weakness. How do you break yes. through that, Charlie? I've seen your workbooks. I've seen you sit with the guys. I've heard you talk about sport. Yes. I've heard you talk about camaraderie. I've heard you talk about competition, sex, all of this stuff. But where, where is it in your experience that the, the change comes where you see them click, ah, okay, this is something I hadn't thought of before that will make me a better man? Gerard, what is key is that when you have a one-on-one of them, when you chat with them and make them feel very, very important. Because rejection is a huge thing among our youth, bullying and everything. But when you make you feel important, they say, tell me about you, man. You look like mm-hmm. a great person and everything. Then you first see the tears coming out and say, no, I'm not a great person. Why? I think like Mark, uh, Mark was saying, for 19 years, when he was 19 years, he was still struggling with that thing. So where self-love is coming in, you know, you, you play with him, you make that person feel very, very important. You know, I always make an example of Madiba when I was in Bloemfontein. When Madiba was at the Free State Stadium, a little girl in a wheelchair came and Madiba went straight to her and uh, Madiba gave her 100 rent. I was blessed to stand next to them. And Madiba said, no, 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 because the parents were saying that we, we are so honored and so privileged to meet you, Madiba. And Madiba said, no, I'm honored, I'm privileged to meet you people. So I think we need to get to the level of those young men and boys and make them feel important. And also, Karen, what I've picked up with the APSA training is that culture plays a very, very important role. You'll find out that the boys in KZN are very tough. They are like warriors. Mm. Then when you go to Cape Town, it's another type of boys. When you go to Joburg, it's another type of boys. So you have to get to their level. Just, just, I'd like to know more about that in a second. Uh, Mark, you want to add to what Charlie was saying about this, this ability to connect with these boys and to make the difference? I think uh, Charlie is correct in saying that young men have never known the love of their fathers. And um, I had an experience a few years ago where I started a community program where there was about 20 young people who would come in and share my gym equipment and we would train. But they were rough and they were really tough boys and you know, this gangster style hip on the street and all of that. And one of the young boys was actually the leader. And I, I targeted him specifically because he had an influence over the other young people. And he would write with a cokey pen, murder, death, and crime boss and all of that on his arms. And the one evening I just felt led, uh, you know, and he found it very strange. I grabbed a hold of him and I said, come here, I want to give you a hug. And I hugged him intensely and I said to you, you know what? I love you. And that just, he just broke down. And the first response he said to me was, for the first time in my life, have I felt the love of a father? And that was something that moved me so intensely. And if these young people can actually feel loved rather than rejected, their mindsets will change and they don't have an understanding of what it is to be loved by a male role model. Someone who would say, listen, irrespective of your your mistakes, there's still an opportunity to learn and to grow. So absolutely, Charlie is on the head with that. You know, these guys then grow up and they go and look for a job and they try to, to sustain their own lives and their families' lives if they have them. But it's, very, it, it, it's near impossible. It, it's, it's difficult for anybody, even people who were raised with all the resources, with all the support, with all the love, those people – also have a tough time. Now, when these guys that you're talking about get into 
the job market. It's, it's that much harder for them because they then get into an environment where they're required to behave a way they've never been taught to behave. And sometimes these are the guys who end up causing a lot of trouble in businesses for their managers, for their colleagues, and most especially for the women they work with because they're not sure how to, how to handle this change of environment. Um, in your experience, I mean, Mark, you, you work, you know, in the Department of Water and Sanitation, and Charlie, you obviously run your foundation, but I'd also like to hear from Dumelo here. So feel free to jump in at any point, Dumelo. We know that there's a delay, so we'll just, if you come in, we'll all shut up and let you carry on. But um, if any of you want to jump in on how that that journey gets more complicated for men as they grow up and as they develop responsibilities, which some of them just don't take seriously, like, you know, having a kid of their own. All right, Gareth, I think... Uh, Gareth, okay, go, Mark. It's fine. It's, uh, yeah, sorry. Thanks, thanks, Charlie. I think from an organizational perspective, uh, the workplace has changed um, drastically. Being in the field of human resources, um, employee health and wellness should play a critical role in shaping the organizational culture as well. And I find that if you don't ha- do not have a solid employee health and wellness program, that can actually orientate people into the organizational culture that supports that culture of of um, of unity, that culture of uh, care. Mm-hmm. You know, those value systems that we so nicely put on that board and introduce everyone into, this is the company values. But the, the is that value proposition actually practiced in the culture of the organization? And this is where organizations have to live their value culture in order to gain credibility in the workplace. And that's where employee health and wellness comes in to offer services to help people. Not, not just, it's not just a, um, you know, uh, uh, onboarding, um, exiting retirement. It's a journey with an employer as well who has a social corporate responsibility to ensure that they address the issues that affect society as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, when I started to work, I started to work as a tailor in a bank. Now, very rough, finish of school, matric, and the only white person that you know is that uh, my, it was my history teacher. Yeah. And suddenly, I'm in this big bag with a lot of white people, and now <laughs> we go into the syntaxion and everything. Now, we were five, five uh, black guys and five white guys. And the general manager that time, you know, invited the white guys for lunch. And because I was always outspoken, outspoken all of my years, so I went to him later and asked him, Sir, I just wanted to know, is our lunch maybe tomorrow? Because I see you took the five guys for lunch. So are we going tomorrow for lunch? And since that day now, I was, I was labeled as rebel and everything in the bank. And, uh, you know, they said, no, the ones that are going to pass this Taylor course of 100% will be deployed in this prestigious bank. At a branch. So I passed 100% and I was deployed in one of the rural areas. I asked them, but oh, guys, God. you said that. They said, no, no, no. I want to take you out of the system. That's why what, what, what Mark said, orientation in the beginning is very tricky in any organization. It can make you or break you. That's why most of them just go out, you know, the first year, three months, you see that the, the person just resigned because of the pressure. Because you've never been told. I always tell people I was in football also, saying that most of the soccer players grew up without fathers. That's why they, you know, they will go this way and everything. And mm. co- the coach can 
cannot get hand over them and everything. So it's important to know who is this little boy or who is this person in front of me. That's why it's important for us to know who are you and why, where are you going. So, Dumelo, this is something I do want you to come in on, please, because what you started inside of ABSA is interesting. You started this, uh, this discussion group, and I think that this can be very helpful to people who feel often that they don't have the tools um, to, to, to do this on their own. And there are people in these imbizos, in these clubs, in these foundations, which uh, you know, I think helps a lot of men who feel that they don't have an identity, that they, that they left alone, that they don't have male role models, all of those things. How do you feel that that's helped inside a business? And have you had a massive uptake? Have you had a lot of interest from the men inside your business? Yeah, thanks, Gareth. And once again, I think apologies are part of it. But what I can uh, tell you is that um, our very when we started this, it wasn't easy. Um, since I think I've lost you there. All right, I'm I'm just going to take control here quickly. I'm afraid I'm gonna I'm gonna let uh, Tumelo go because otherwise we're going to miss out on some time here, and and there are lots of things we still need to discuss. So I want to go back to something you said, Charlie, and and I know you've got something to add before I, I I get to that. So please feel free to take over after that. But I want to talk about these cultural things that you mentioned. You you kind of went into the difference between the boys in KZN and the boys in the Western Cape. But before that, you wanted to add something to my question to Tumelo. Yes, I, I said men usually don't attend things that are actually going to help them. Yeah. And I think as men, it's important for us to get rid of this ego and this uh, backwardness because uh, we need help. We need help. We need to speak up. We need platforms to talk because a lot of us are battling with a lot of issues. But pride is holding us back, Garrett. We are scared. But who's Garrett after all? to tell me that mm. or who is Mark. We need to get rid of that thing and really start looking at the problem that we are the problem and uh, we need to look deep in ourselves and say, even if I'm not the one beating up somebody, but I know about Mark, I know about Garrett, and I cannot keep quiet. So men must step up. Men must come out of the of the closets. So the culture stuff, uh, before we get to that, Matthew says, well said, Charlie, about your, your point about love and about setting the example. Jane says, respect for fighting your way through your experience, Mark. And uh, Roxanne says, boys must know love and acceptance. It's very important. Desiree and Grace echoing that. Desiree saying, it is difficult for someone who has not seen love to show it to others. Self-worth is then quite low as a result. And Grace DeCamo saying, that is so true. I know a lot of bad behavior begins at home. But if we reach out and show kindness, we could end up being this individual's role model in the story that you told, Mark. So culture in South Africa, we have lots of traditions, right? We know that sex is seen as a man's right in marriage in some cultures. We know that there's a dowry, a lobola, which is paid to the, the, the wife's family from the husband. It's expected in some cultures, and I actually had... Uh, Tulima Doncella on my TV show not so long ago saying that she thinks that actually Lobola is an outdated concept in a world where we have equal rights for men and women. But there are obviously arguments in the opposite direction where girls are responsible for controlling a man's sexual urges. In other words, women get the blame if they're wearing a short skirt, you know, that it's their fault that they asked for this kind of thing. And when sexual activity is a marker of masculinity, we know lots of guys think that the more sex they have with women, whether it's with or without the consent, the more manly they are. Do you want to deal with some of those things? 
All right. I think, uh, you know, I grew up in Smitty, like I said, you know, in uh, that time there was no uh, colored or black areas. We all grew up in one area. And so most of our friends, the same age, will go to circumcision school. And when they came back, suddenly they're telling us, no, you, you are a boy, child. You're not a man. Mm. And suddenly now they are the guys among the girls now. And uh, they are be given the license now to date them, to do things like that. And I also had another discussion with Herman Mashaba, mm. because he also grew up without a father. Uh, actually, it's not Herman, it's Herman. His story, because he was, he was raised by a white couple, he said, Charlie, for us to show that we are men, yeah. I was forced to sleep over a, over a lot of girls just to go back to prove that I am a man. And that is, this is really nonsense that, uh, you know, if a, if a woman or a girl wear a short skirt and everything, yeah. she's provoking me. You know, I'm raising my daughter. I said, you know, you need to have your skirt at a certain level. But I said, Daddy, but it's not yours. It's mine. Why do you mm-hmm. tell me that, Daddy, you must also wear uh, not the tight uh, pants. You must also wear like this. So I believe that we need to be free as as, as, as human beings to be what we really want to be and who we are. We cannot be forced and no man can dictate to a woman. Gone are those days. Was it Hagen? You know, those days where the guys were hitting women over with a stick over the head and the woman must go and, right. and hunt and bring food to them. Gone are those days. It's a long time ago now. And, and rightly so. <laughs> rightly so. It should be a, a thing of the past. What are your experiences, Mark, mm-hmm. in terms of, of cultural uh, complications to this argument? Look, it's it's so entrenched in culture um, because we've built uh, on a culture of a patriarchal society. But my 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 view on culture is that just like everything changes, if we're willing to accept change, uh, it would benefit us tremendously. The excuse that uh, it is the culture is not enough because if we ought to look at everything that has changed from one generation to the other, then I would like to challenge every man to park his BMW, his nice Jeep Cherokee, Mm. and his Ferrari in his garage, get onto a donkey cart, and let's ride it through the towns. Yeah. Because if, 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 if you, if you want to send a snail mail to someone and wait for the, uh, send your Christmas card in September and hope it reaches the person in December, then it's culture change is just like accepting any other change. Right. It's, it's, it's the same mechanism that we use to accept change. So if you don't want to live in the past and have the conveniences of modern day technology and all that comes with it, these cultures that do not work for today's society must be embraced just like we've embraced the conveniences of life um, in our everyday living. Or we must go back to the old way of things where we, we ride horses and, and send snail mail. I, I'm going to bring Jacques Rousseau into the conversation. He is a lecturer in critical thinking and ethics at the University of Cape Town. And he's a campaigner for evidence-based reasoning in science, secularism, and humanism. And Jacques and I had a conversation yesterday, which is why it's in a video. But I encourage you to listen to that at the end of this presentation. Uh, can we just refer briefly, because it is an important part of this, to the effect of drugs and alcohol on men in society in South Africa, something which you spoke about a little bit, Mark, in your own personal story earlier. But, Charlie, how bad is this? How bad is the tick problem in in communities in South Africa? And 
is this partly to blame, without removing the agency from these men for which they are responsible, is this partly to blame for the problems that we have in our society? It's deeper than that. It's deeper than that, Gerard, but it is partly to blame. But the root cause, we have to look at the root cause. And I promise you, the root cause is fatherlessness, lack of mentorship, lack of uh, guidance and everything. And also, you know, I've done a lot of work, work in the Northern Cape. I've done a lot of work in the Western Cape, where most of the social ills are coming from. Those boys don't have nowhere to run to. They don't have any place to go to. Mm. The place to go to is where the gangsters are, the drug users are, and everything, because they are embraced. They are being loved. Because society, we are very cruel as society. We're spitting you out. You know, if you, <laughs> instead of helping you, we're spitting you up. Oh, they will tell you we're getting more love from Do you believe that we have love from a big- the drug dealers than we get love from you and the church and all the organizations that are there? And I also believe that really even government is not doing a lot. We can't, we can really get rid of this if we put energy and time on this. But it is destroying a nation big time. And and drugs and Turk is not a black or colored or Mm -hmm. a white thing. It's a global thing. Yeah, and I, and I, I, want, to, I want to bring that up quickly because uh, here's a question from Tracy. She says, what about men who come from privilege and a stable family who are also abusive? Because that happens more than people would like to admit. I'm going to jump in there because I also do a lot of one-on-ones. I'm also a life coach is that mothers will call you and most of our rich parents, uh, Garrett, wants to overcompensate for the time that they are not available in the lives of their children. Yes. And now the privileged guys are raised now of they're getting everything. Yeah. And suddenly they are in a society where they need to be now themselves and they don't know how to be themselves. And they tend to go to this uh, substance abuse and, and abuse because power. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was born in power. I was born in privilege. Yeah. Mark, can I ask you something quickly? Uh, because there are a lot of other questions I'll get to in a minute. But the things that you're doing, the panic button and and GBV Anonymous, um, c- could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, look, Project Rage was actually, um, I woke up the one morning and um, after a restless night, you know, the crime statistics were released. And, and I just want to give you a quick brief back- background. And I actually woke up sobbing because I thought, look, there are so many problems out there, but in un- not enough tangible solutions. And I realized that the words rage popped into my in, in, into my spirit. And, and I'm wondering, but why did this word come up, you know? And when I looked it up in the online dictionary, the word rage actually has two meanings. And most of us associated with uncontrollable anger. But the other explanation of the word rage is actually vehement um, desire and passion. And I thought to myself, look, um, if if rage is channeled in the right direction towards uh, passion and desire, we can flip the coin on rage. And the same hormone that drives men into rage is the same hormone that drives men to passion and desire. And we all know it's testosterone. Yeah. So how do we channel that 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 negative energy towards positivity that's going to result in us understanding that we are bringing about solutions to problems that, that is not, a, as, as the speaker uh, Jackson said, uh, gender-based violence is not a woman thing. It's a man thing. It's, it's, we, we, we understand globally through research and statistically, uh, most of the perpetrators um, 
um, of, of violent crimes against women are perpetrated by men themselves. Mm. So if we change the culture and make men part of the solution, we're actually going to help people understand that men are changing and the, the, as Charlie said, the root cause is being dealt with. Now, w- when it comes to a, a panic button, um, as part of our, our, our objectives, um, we find that the police, by the time they get, they are stretched to the limit. They don't have vehicles. You wait and hold on on one or triple one for a long time before you can get responses. Yes. And in terms of our projects, the panic button is actually based on uh, having champions in the, in the local neighborhood who have taken the pledge and vowed to be part of the solution. So if we have 10 men in, in, in the neighborhood that can actually stand outside this home of this person, this woman that has a restraining order against her partner as, as a guard, while the, 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 the police um, respond to the problem, the person and the likelihood of the person actually committing acts of violence is much less when they see a crowd of people because there's a crowd of witnesses that are there. So we link this this panic button to the local um, security companies right. and the local um, um, group of people who join the organization as well. That's that's a terrific initiative. Again, gentlemen, I have to congratulate both of you, Charlie and, and Mark, on your work. I just want to see if we can get Tumelo back on. He's, he seems to have got a better connection. Tumelo, can you hear us? Hmm. Seems that that delay is just something we can't get over. It's, it's funny. Botswana's right next door. And uh, we're having trouble getting Dumelo on. So I'm just going to move straight into our conversation with Jacques Rousseau. Now, this is interesting because Jacques has a, a very uh, academic but a very interesting and a very thought-provoking take on gender-based violence and on the role of men in society. I had a conversation with him yesterday. He's a lecturer in critical thinking and ethics at the University of Cape Town. And to round off the conversation for this morning, I'm going to let you hear from Jacques. Uh, just before we go into Jacques, because we'll end with that, I want to thank everybody who joined us for the live session and remind you that the entire session will be available on cliffcentral.com. We will also obviously serve it out on the various platforms that are allied to us on this cause and with these webinars. So you can listen to all of it, including a much longer conversation I had with Jackson and a much longer conversation I had with Jacques, which will also be available on cliffcentral.com, either as a video or as a podcast. So you can go and grab those. Charlie, I want to thank you very much. Mark, I want to thank you. And in absentia, I want to thank Dumelo as well for your contributions today. And keep doing the good work that you're doing, gentlemen. It's extremely important. And thank you very much for sharing your stories with us. Good to see you. Uh, here is thank Jacques, here is Jacques Rousseau, everybody. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Here is Jacques Rousseau. Take a listen to what he had to say about what exactly this problem is from an ethical point of view, from a critical thinking point of view, and exactly uh, what his, his expertise in the field might be best put to use in with respect to gender-based violence and sexual violence against women. Have a listen to this. Do you believe that we have a bigger problem than other places in the world? And do you think that that may have something to do with our moral underpinnings and perhaps something to do with the way that we view each other in society and the way that violence has become such a normal part of South African life? I do think that that we might have a bigger problem than some other parts of the world in the sense that we are a fairly patriarchal society. We do hold to those traditional values. We're kind of a Judeo-Christian at our, at our heart. And I think that's led to a kind of hierarchical family structure whereby the man is the person who's in control and earns the money and therefore has the authority in the household and other people need to serve him rather than any other way around, etc. 
And those things don't necessarily need to manifest in a toxic kind of way, but I think often here they do. They manifest in a in an intolerance of poor dissent uh, from your partner or your spouse, and in worst cases they manifest in in violence. But it's it's not just that gender thing that that I think is a problem here. I think there's a general lack of charity and sympathy in countries like ours where we are so socioeconomically riven and desperate and there's so much crime and so much poverty. None of that stuff conduces very easily to sympathy and compassion for each other. Do you think that there are some people who get it right in spite of all those things? I mean, we all know about how many single moms are trying their damnedest to raise kids. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they don't. We also know about nuclear families that are more than capable of of raising a generation of men who I think many of us would be very proud to con- consider among us and representatives of us. But there are obviously a great swathe of population in, in this country who are just without any direction and perhaps without any role models and without the right kind of examples of masculinity, which might put them in the driving seat for not only their own futures and their own destiny, but might also be able to help the women who they encounter along the way to be treated with respect and decency at the very least. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so first, on your first point, of course, there are are so many courageous and, and, and hardworking and strong even without like without support, women who are who are doing wonderful jobs. I mean, my mother raised me for many years, mostly by herself and my brothers. And I'm sure many listeners or people who are watching would have the same experience. So there's no question that you can get it right. But the point is that I, I think you often might start from a position of weakness in the sense of there being for many people a lack of social support. As mm-hmm. far as men and the contribution they can make, yeah, they they. I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with with masculine role models. In fact, they can be enormously valuable and and not because of some sort of binary split as in you need the masculine representation and the feminine in the family. I don't really care as long as the children are supported and, and are allowed to flourish in the ways that their temperament matches. Traditionally, we, of course, have those two things. And... Um, it's not necessarily a problem if one of them is missing, but uh, because you can substitute with something else. But we are, in many cases, I think, missing a positive kind of masculinity and instead experiencing that kind of, and I know the phrase is slightly hackneyed, but the that's toxic, toxic, yeah. the toxic example. Well, I think there's a, there's a huge amount of evidence to back up that, that hackneyed phrase, and, and it might be uncomfortable for some men to hear it over and over again, but it's probably important to stress that until the behavior changes to a degree where we don't have to measure toxic masculinity. Perhaps the phrase will fall out of favor. Now, I know that you've spoken rather a lot about the influence of culture on all of this. And, And by culture, we could include many different cultures. We could include, you know, traditional stuff, which you've referred to already, religious stuff. But there is also the impact of of the culture that we all share in in the world today, a sort of a pop culture, a, a, a modernism of a kind, um, where people are influenced by the arts, by the media. Do you feel that there's an influence, a positive one, that can be played by those people? And and do you think there's also a certain amount of easy excuse-making on the part of people who will say things that, for example, have no real consequential value to society like oh i'm not going to buy r kelly music because he's a uh, deviant and a pedophile mm. i mean to link this question with with what we were just saying previously 
certainly we are we can be and are guided by things in 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 popular media but the problem here is that much of our reaction i think is a, is simply a kind of moral grandstanding so mm-hmm. you you pick there's some fashion in in society and some trend whether it's a ethical position or a political position and instead of using those as vehicles for self reflection and trying to establish whether your own principles are virtuous whether they're consistent whether they suit your values whether so I'm for example a humanist as, as you are by and large and we, we share that yeah, um, absolutely so, so does this uh, trend what are its long term impacts on that value instead of being kind of either grandstanding on a principle or being absolutist about it adopting a nuanced view and letting it inform you so to link it as a stage to our previous conversation on the toxic masculinity side i for example have a very weird manifestation of that in the sense that i have been trained to be a stoic right so i in that sense i do the cause of gender uh, uh and do the cause harm by not being able to emote effectively and 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 be sympathetic to somebody else's feelings and that's not something which is vindictive but it's something which has been culturally in a sense ingrained in me and which i always have to fight against and that's what the kind of it's, things it's so interesting i was having precisely this discussion with with someone who really does know me well and we were talking about this space between facts and feelings and how it can be looked at positively and generously or it can be looked at very critically and unkindly and and either way i think you're doing a disservice to both the facts and the feelings because there is an element of both that needs to come into this but they are essentially also at root kind of masculine and female ways of looking at things feminine ways of looking at things um you know feelings have become massively important in the public discourse and if you look for example at the way that michelle obama spoke at the democratic national convention it was pretty much all about empathy emotion feelings caring that kind of thing um and and yet that that sort of stuff runs kind of against the point of view that people like you and I who are much more in, interested in the science the reality the fact the material um it it doesn't that stuff doesn't resonate as easily with us and perhaps that's also an area that we might want to look at if we want to improve not just gender relations in some very general sense but the the, the miscommunications between men and women when it comes to understanding the importance of both feelings and facts Yeah I mean to perhaps articulate the same point in a different way I mean you've heard people like Ben Shapiro and that phrase facts don't care about your feelings and that is a is a lovely distillation of exactly the problem because it presents them as a binary and feelings yeah. are feelings are a fact as well right so yeah. just stripping those out of the conversation means I'm not engaging with half of who you are and I mean half is a made up figure but some substantial portion of who you are and what informs which facts you care about right that is the uh, the last bit of today I'm, I'm so sorry we're out of time but we're actually a minute late already thank you all very very much for joining us all of this will be available on cliffcentral cliffcentral.com i want to thank my guests again i want to thank you for being a participant in this thank you for your questions i hope we got round to a few of them at least there were many i do want to end with this from um, from charlie no excuse at all which is such a a powerful line there is no excuse if you know a man who is behaving inappropriately to women whether it's a small thing or a very big thing you got to say something about that if you're a real man abusive men aren't monsters who crawl out of swamps to beat women they are normal men and they are around us 
says Liesel. She's 100% correct. Thank you to everybody. Jane, thank you very much for your comments and everyone who was participating both in the live chat and in the recorded stuff. I will try to catch up with Dumelo as, uh, as, a, as a kind of bonus podcast, which we'll put together in the next few weeks. But thank you all very, very much. Have an excellent day and keep fighting the good fight. Cliffcentral.com.